0: Welcome to Always West Seattle, where the people, places, happenings, and history of West Seattle intersect. I'm your host, Keith Bacon. In this episode, we'll get to know Matt Johnston, creator of an inspiring magazine that's driving a movement towards doing good and embracing positivity. Before we dive in for that story, do me a quick favor and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, which is also a great place to share your comments and reviews. I'd really love to hear from you, so tell me what you like about this podcast and what you'd like to hear more of or what you'd like to hear less of. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle on all three social platforms is always podcast, and that's all with two L's, but you've probably figured that out by now. Ever since this podcast began, I've been talking to West Seattle people about the various pandemic-related pivots they've made in their personal and professional lives. In this episode, I talk with someone in our community who made a big, bold move well before the whole world changed. Motivated by his own internal thinking, his desire to try something different, and the drive to connect people in a positive way. His name is Matt Johnston, and what he created back in 2018 to deliver on these ideals is called PMA Magazine. It's focused on people doing good things for their community or the world and finding out how they make it possible. We caught up with Matt to learn more about the magazine, the movement, and the man behind it. Tell me what this term PMA means and where it came from.
1: Great question, Keith. By the way, thanks for having me on. This is totally awesome. I love your podcast. I listen to it all the Thank time. You. I mean, people should probably know in full disclosure, we're neighbors. and uh, <laughs> But everybody in West Seattle is a neighbor, right? Like we're all... It's true. PMA it stands for positive mental attitude. And it's a term that was coined way back in... I think it's like the early 1900s. There was a guy who Nathan Hill, I think was it? Napoleon Hill wrote this like kind of very first, it wasn't quite self-help. It was more of like a get rich quick kind of uh, book. Like he was like the early Tony Robbins and he wrote this book and it was, there was a lot of concepts in there, but really what he was promoting was the idea that you thought positively you could actually create your own reality. Hmm. and i think that back then there was it's interesting when because i've gone back and i've read those books now and there's there was another one by norman vincent peel that was called think and grow rich and then there was like then the lineage of the phrase goes on to like become a a, a punk rock anthem because of bad brains wrote a song called attitude and there's a lyric in there uh, about pma and then i adopted it for now like just i wanted to take it into like a, A next level after that and it's been used and tattooed and people talk about it all the time and so it's funny i knew that there was going to be a whole bunch of people who didn't know what it meant and early concepts of the cover and of the branding for the magazine did include positive mental attitude on there but i'd almost rather like invite that conversation with people that don't know what it is and this is probably like if there's anybody out there who's like a a marketing person they're probably just like that is the stupidest That is like rule number one not to do, (laughs) but I I don't care. Like I I love having that conversation with people. And then I also love that it can mean something else or it can become to mean this thing that I'm doing. And it almost leaves headroom by not defining it for people. It leaves headroom for them to bring their own meaning to it.
0: Would you say that it's associated with a particular scene or audience? I think there's a couple
1: different groups of people that use the term pretty regularly, like definitely punk rock, skateboarding, DIY culture, a lot of the places that we go in the magazine. But there's also like this whole self-help category of people who use it So like I I was very surprised when I went onto my Peloton and looked for PMA sort of tags and stuff like that to see that there's just like this huge army of middle-aged women out there riding their exercise bikes, putting the tag of PMA into their uh, fitness profile.
0: (laughs) Talk about trending now.
1: (laughs) It's nice that it's not super targeted and niche to the point where
0: nobody knows what it is. But it is Mm -hmm. cool that it is still
1: a little bit unknown.
0: And how did the idea for PMA Magazine come about?
1: I had been unceremoniously departed from my corporate job. I was a repeat offender at this company. I'd gone back a second time to go do some different types of work there that I had done the first time. And things just as a second timer, like my tolerance for... What was going on there was a lot lower. And I also felt like I had a lot more agency over what I wanted to do. I was getting older. I was like, maybe I'm aging out of this space. So I took advantage of an opportunity to leave. If that's that makes any sense, and um, yeah,
0: it absolutely does. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely resonates with my own trajectory. <laughs> dig it, dig it.
1: So then I was like, okay, I'm gonna go on this like vision quest, and a friend of mine who has um, done a lot of great things in music and has been very fortunate also is using his resources to build. Uh, tons of skate parks in the state of Montana for kids that are isolated in all these different towns. Like he was when he was growing up, his name's Jeff and he plays bass in in Pearl Jam. And so I just went, like, I wanted to see his good work. I wanted to experience his, all of these things that he was doing because I knew that there would be some inspiration out there. And also I enjoy skateboarding. So I Mm -hmm. got in a car and I drove around and I just had a map with all of these different projects that he was involved in. And I would just stop into these different places. And I would stay there and just skate and talk to the people at the skate park and and try to immerse myself a little bit into the culture in these towns. And there's this town called Browning, which is on a a reservation on the High Line. So it's like the northernmost highway in Montana that borders Canada. And uh, it's a town that like, I think it's not offensive to say that they're just, it's like, it's, they don't have, The resources that they need. It's like a pretty gnarly town, right? There's like there's some nice little spots of it, but it's really gritty and it's hard living out there Mm -hmm. for these folks. There's a casino, and that is like beautiful and it's super nice. And then there's everything else. And 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 I don't want to make it sound like it's sad or anything. Like it's just like rural for sure. So I roll up to the skate park, and it's like. It's amazing. It's like, you can just see in this big field that used to just be like frogs and weeds and plants and just like, whatever, this (laughs) skate park just rises up. And and that sounds like I'm like diminishing the the effort that was put in by the people who built and designed it. But it's like suddenly there's a skate park where there was nothing and these kids, mostly kids, but there's adults who skate too, have this incredible place, right, where Mm. they belong and they're stewards of the space. And Jeff tells them right up front, he's like, you need to take care of this place. This is your place, but nobody's gonna come and build you another one. If this one gets Mm -hmm. ruined, or if you let people drive their cars over it, or if you just like trash it, then there will be no skate park. So you need to own this. And they did. And when I rolled in there, they were like, who are you? Like, what's up weirdo? older dude by yourself and i'm like i'm here to skate and i love this place and i want you to just like show me how to be a good citizen in your space like how how can i participate Mm -hmm. and they were just like come over here and learn this and skate with me over here and they were just super cool and friendly and i just remember thinking to myself like wow this is such an amazing gift for these kids because like now they have all of this this sense of ownership and this space that they own and that they call their own. And I just observed like how that could have possibly, I just imagined how it could have possibly changed their whole reality, right. you know? And then not only that, but like now there's like these, it's like this cultural exchange, like I'm there. And so like, you know, like we can talk about stuff and they're like, where are you from? And what's it like there? And, and, oh, I know somebody in Seattle. And like, do you know them? <laughs> like that, that kind of stuff.
0: So they were very open and welcoming to you ultimately.
1: Totally. Totally. I mean, there was the weird stranger danger thing at first, and then sure. it's just like, but I think skateboarders too, it's just like, there's something about skateboarders where, you know, we trust each other pretty implicitly right off the bat, because there's a lot of shared, like a road under the wheels there. I was an eight year old kid on a skateboard at one point. <laughs> so, so then it just occurred to me like, Hey, this is an exceptional situation. Like not everybody has, has the ability to just like you know, go out and motivate people and has a platform that they can use to create an entire network of skate parks across an entire state. But I do believe that there are many, many people who would love to do something else or something more meaningful than what they're doing. And by meaningful, I just mean the thing that makes them when they go to bed at night feel like good about their life. You know, like what, man, I'm making an impact on some level that is outside of me, that goes beyond me. And to, the sad part of this story is that a lot of people don't feel like they have the luxury to do that until they get their own stuff in order. It's like waiting to have kids until you're like 40 because you just <laughs> want to have like everything set up, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people who do that find out that it's new. so. So it's similar to that. So it's like, if you just keep waiting until you're like independently wealthy before you start helping other people, you're never going to discover the joy of that. And then the other barrier of entry is all of the negative self-talk about like, oh, I don't have the skills or I don't have the resources. So, so I'm thinking about all this stuff. I'm like, how can I make doing good things more inclusive, more accessible, and seem like it's not as hard so that other people can connect with the, the idea of just changing their life in a comfortable way for them. So right. on the spectrum of like, there are people who just like, I just want to keep doing my normal day job because I'm, I'm very safe and I don't want to take big risks like that. But I would love to know what I can do in my after hours time to just make a little bit of a difference. Yeah. And then there are people who like, I am so sick of what I'm doing. I just want to totally flip it. Mm -hmm. I want to make a resource for anybody on that spectrum to connect with stories about other people who are doing things all across that spectrum. Mm -hmm. And just when they read the story, connect with it in a way that makes it seem like, oh, that's not that person isn't that different than me. Like they just they were inspired by something. They had an idea and then they did the work. That's the only difference between them and me. And so this now becomes super accessible to me. Mm -hmm. This now becomes something that, that I can really aspire to do. And, and, and there's like this added sort of secondary benefit, which is that like people are just overwhelmed by negative news and it's just nice to read positive stories.
0: Well, and I think you're providing inspiration points across a lot of different levels to lots of different kinds of people. And uh, we live in a a culture that is incredibly risk averse. (laughs) You know, we're not really encouraged to take risks the way that maybe we think that we are. And when you have something like your magazine that is giving people inspiration and ideas and examples of like, you could do this, or this person is doing that. I think that's that's really valuable in the world that we're living in right now.
1: Thanks, Keith. And I think you know this, right, inherently, but what I talk about is the risk could be not doing it. Yeah. Like what's worse than being at the end of your life and looking back and taking inventory of everything that you've done and all of the experiences that you've had and thinking, ah, I wish I'd have, I had done that thing, yeah. you know, like that that to me is my worst nightmare. Like that thing is <laughs> that, that scares me so badly. Right. So, so the value proposition could actually be the reverse of what you just described.
0: So this road trip up and down the West coast was a, a big inspiration point for you in creating the magazine. Do you feel that it has a particular West coast attitude or vibe?
1: I could see where it might read and present that way. I definitely Started with the magazine because it was like close to me. It was my dad started a magazine in 1977 about fishing in Hawaii. It was called Mm -hmm. Hawaii Fishing News. It's still going. It's still print. So that was sort of in my DNA. I saw him do it as a kid. It seemed to me something like I could get my head around and that I could do, even though I didn't have the, the content of the magazine. I felt like they're skateboarding, they're surfing. There are things that you could qualify as like coastal cultural things my intention is for it not to read that way is for it to mm-hmm. be more accessible and inclusive of like a bunch of different stuff but i just you know i think one of the things that you have to do when you're starting anything and you know this keith is like you just have to work with what you got yeah and you know i just sort of turn my network over and shook it out and just started making phone calls to the people that I knew. Yeah. Um, and they just happened to be skaters and surfers and and environmentalists and you know, there's a lot of other stuff in there. You know, what's interesting about that question, because I think about that a lot, is like uh uh-huh. when you look back at big cultural publications in the history of skateboarding and stuff, it's like you know, Thrasher and Skateboarder, these magazines being read by kids who were in landlocked states, flyover states. Mm -hmm. And they were these like vehicles for this cultural movement that was happening in another place. Mm -hmm. And through that medium, these kids were sort of immersed themselves in something that wasn't happening in their town, but they could like imagine it happening in their town and maybe they mm. could like go to the back and like order some a skateboard or order some stickers or like a t-shirt and wear it to school and just be like yeah i'm a skateboarder not even really knowing yet what that means not even yeah. yet having a skateboard but associating <laughs> themselves with that movement that was happening in a different place and imagining themselves participating in that culture and i mm. think that is the pma like that's the core you know ethos here it's you know you got to start somewhere And when you start to visualize yourself in a different place or in a different role or participating in something that you aspire to be a part of, that is actually a very, very valuable and effective way to get there, right? And so so maybe there's a coastal vibe to it, but maybe somebody that's not a skateboarder reads a story about somebody who is a skateboarder, who is doing something through skateboarding that's very positive. And they're like, well, I'm not a skateboarder, I'm into knitting. Or, mm. But I can draw parallels between what yeah. I'm doing and what they're doing, and get something out of it that way.
0: Who would you say is your primary audience for the magazine?
1: Well, I know everybody would say everyone, right? Like you want, everyone, <laughs> and so I'm not. But that you know, ultimately, I'm looking for people who are burnt out on negativity, on burnt out on negative news, who are coming out of this last sort of four years of just nightmare city. Yeah. thinking like, I am not going to sit on the sidelines anymore. Not just like in the community that they live in, but in their mm. own life. Like I don't want to be on the sidelines of my own life any longer. <laughs> Cause I don't, I, like I'm, I've taken it for granted for too long, right? And so I'm trying to like turn people on to this. It's like telling somebody, it's like pointing out a sound in, in somebody's house or environment that's super irritating. And then now they can hear it. Oh, yeah. And now they're just like, I wish you never told me about that. (laughs) It's like that. So it's Uh like, and and so I apologize right now for the, you know, the, the sensitivity that gets created by understanding that, like, you know, you have potential that you're just not taking advantage of. It's up to you to change that situation. And then here's the solution. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and it's not even, it's not even that hard. It's not even that complicated. It's just right in front of you, you know? So that's the audience I'm looking for is just people who are yearning for more positivity in their life and that they want to like internalize that positivity and then project that out into their communities.
0: And what's the reaction been like so far?
1: You know, we have really small numbers. We don't print a huge number of issues. We don't have a huge subscriber base. The team is, I don't have the resources to like pay anybody, including myself. In fact, I lose money, I'm still losing money. It doesn't lose a lot. It's like, I think we'll break even this year, which is great. Yeah, I'm not paying anybody. My biggest dream is to actually make this a platform that can actually compensate contributors. I would love for a, a young writer to get their first published piece in PMA and actually get paid for that. But the reaction, you know, one of my favorite um, stories about like how people have responded to, there's a a woman who lives in West Seattle who was just like right early adopter, like just came to the launch party was Mm -hmm. just like, Oh my God, this is my favorite thing ever bought a bunch of issues and then would just carry them around with her wherever she went and then use them as a way to like, turn people onto it and then would give them one. Like she was like my street team.
0: A Johnny Appleseed of inspiration. Totally.
1: (laughs) So like, there's no higher compliment than that. So that alone, like I get one of those a month where somebody will just write me an email or reach out and just say like, hey, the fact that you're doing this, it just changed my, it just makes my whole day better or whatever. And that's all I really need. Like, And and it's crazy how it happens when I'm like about to give up, you know, it's like, I'll just Mm. be so down, something bad will happen. And I'll just be like, oh my God, I can't believe like, how am I even doing this? And then (laughs) ding, like the email will come in, you know, and it's like, you know, thank you so much. And, And what's also great is then I convert them into a contributor. So I'm like, well, since you love it so much, I think you should write an
0: article. <laughs> a little recognition can go a long way.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and again, Keith, I just want to thank you for writing an excellent piece in our second issue when, like, oh, you my know, pleasure. I, I needed you the most. At the time that I needed you
0: the most, you came through. <laughs> that was a fun exercise for me. I haven't, my background in my very early days was that kind of writing, and I hadn't done anything like that in a while. It was fun for me to do, and I'd like to do it again. You're hired. Are there any stories other than the one that I wrote for you that you're particularly proud of?
1: One of the greatest sort of side benefits of this has been, it's a research project for me, Mm -hmm. right? Like selfishly, it's just like, I'm learning about these people too. And I'm getting to explore and understand how these exceptional people make doing good things a sustainable practice. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, like I've never published a story about somebody who, you know, made a whole bunch of money in high tech and just retired to um, make candles, you know, veterans like that's amazing. And right. It's super cool and I'm really glad that somebody is doing something like that.
0: We need more candles out there.
1: <laughs> it's just not and <laughs> it's not an accessible or relatable situation for most people. Yeah. So, I love stories of people who are, who have done something with nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: in a like creative way that really like taps into the special things about them that are unique about them. And the story that comes to mind to me is the story that we did about Louis Gong and Eighth Generation. This is a, a man who's, you know, he's an artist, but he's very sort of business-minded in a non-traditional way. Right. So his organization, he started just drawing on Vans with Sharpies and decorating vans and like his free time. And people were like, okay, can I buy a pair of those? And that like, so he got the bug that way. But when we went and met with him and talked to him and learned more about what he was doing, it was like totally mind blowing because instead of just sort of creating a business for him so that he can sell his art and become like a really famous artist, which he already is. And he created a structure for lifting up, like his entire community and by his entire community, I mean, indigenous artists. So like Mm -hmm. different tribes, different locations, different countries, I can't find anything that sort of limits who he's working with really. Mm. He has created a a model that helps other artists become mini Louis. So Mm. he's not trying to own them. He's not trying to capitalize or trap anybody. Yeah. Um, and his, you know, his terms are super fair. It's like everything is just so incredibly giving. And as a result, he, what he has tapped into is the unusual, unfortunately, notion that if you just raise everybody up around you, everybody benefits, right? In business, there's this sort of counter to that. There's this, you know, kind of understanding or, or this, this trope of like, you know, me first, and yeah. I'm gonna get to the top,
0: you know. Dog eat dog.
1: You have to step on people if you wanna be successful. Like, it's in the movies, it's, it, it, that's mm-hmm. just, that's what they teach in, in business school, you know? Yeah. And he totally went the other way. He's like, you know what? It's not about me, it's about us, they'll take art, from these different artists and then they'll put it into like they'll make a phone case and they'll make a like a blanket and they'll make they productize some of the, the art in different ways mm-hmm. and then they fulfill and sell it and then it, it's just a really cool operation. And like literally a month after our article went to print, his organization, his company was acquired by the Snoqualmie tribe. Oh so, wow. Yeah, so now he's like now he has the backing of this mm-hmm. incredible corporation and he's just he's blowing up. So, That's so cool! Yeah, it, I think it's the proof that everything that is good does not have to be a charity. You don't have to just give till you're empty. Like mm-hmm. there's a there is actually a sustainability piece to this where you can do good things, you can make money doing it, you can make money for others doing it. Other people mm-hmm. can get involved, and you can help. You can help people without like depleting all of your you know
0: your soul. And I think this example is, I think the best kind of paying it forward is creating opportunities for people, you know, sharing your infrastructure or your insights or your leadership to, to not dictate, but to say, you know, like now it's your chance. Let me help you come into your own, create your own reality, as you mentioned before, words to live by personally. <laughs> I think that's the way to do it. That's the right approach. What have been some of the biggest challenges in creating the magazine and how have you overcome them?
1: I didn't know what I was doing
0: at all. <laughs>
1: so just learning how to do it. I mean, yeah. it was, but it was fun. I, li- I like figuring out new things. I'm a seeker. I like to just try to like, if it's not If I've already done it a million times, then I'm just probably not going to
0: enjoy it. Yeah, there's nothing like the the challenge of the unknown. It's thrilling. Really, you have to okay. I got to figure this all out. (laughs) And
1: this is business one hundred and one. Just marketing has been the biggest challenge for me. Yeah, getting the word out. You know, I chose to do a print magazine in twenty nineteen, which was you know the stupidest thing I could have done, (laughs) but. It was is absolutely what I wanted to do. So, so to answer your question, marketing is absolutely the most biggest challenge. And you know, thank you for helping me with that by uh, letting me come onto your podcast. And I'm always looking for different ways and unique ways to do that. You know, I took some issues and I just, I when the pandemic first started, I would just find those like newspaper boxes around West Seattle that didn't yep. have anything in them. And I would just stick some back issues in there. I've left them on the bus before. You know, I've walked around and just started talking to people about it just personally. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have marketing money. I don't want to buy an ad in another magazine for a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> the traditional marketing just doesn't I don't, it's not worth it. I don't, I've tried a little bit. I've dabbled in some of those areas. And the reason why I chose to do print is because as a, as a, as a facsimile of the mission, it is something that is tangible, something that you and I can sit down, we can look at it together. We can flip through it. We can talk about it. We can feel it. We can smell it and I can give it to you and you can walk away with it. And then just sort of as a prototype, it is like, it has all the goods. It's like, it's visual, it's emotional. You know, there's a lot of stuff that gets worked out in the creation of of print media that Mm. translates directly to even a podcast or a, a video or whatever. And since I really didn't know what I was doing and if it was ever going to be something that I even wanted to do, like that was the first question I had to answer was like, do I want to do this? I felt like the print magazine was the perfect prototype and the vision never was just to do a magazine. The vision is actually to like create a platform for this type of thinking and for these types of stories to be told. But to answer your question, like the biggest perceived challenge that I have and the thing that bothers me the most is that I'm not able to like compensate contributors the way I would mm-hmm. like to. But it's funny, every, I always say that and I'm super self-conscious about it and I'm, I'm constantly apologizing to people. And like the response is always like, please don't apologize. Like I want yeah. to contribute to this. Um, I understand Where where you're at, and I just can't say enough about how generous the community that has rallied around this magazine has been. I mean, it's blown me away. It's hard for me to ask for help, you know. That's one of the things that like I really have been learning with this, like learning how to do that. You know, it's really it's I just feel difficult.
0: It is challenging. (laughs) I mean, sometimes for me, that sometimes feels like. I've failed if I have to ask someone for help. I'm, you know, pulling back the curtain behind, you know, my insecurities or something. And that's all just bullshit. (laughs) You know, people want to help. They can always say no. You learn something even from a no sometimes as much as you would get out of a yes. But for what you're doing with the magazine, people want to contribute to this because they want to be part of this feeling and, or this movement or this kind of idea that makes a lot of sense to me. But it's when you're the one in the driver's seat, when you're the one constantly asking questions, it's so easy to to really lose sight of that. Yeah,
1: and and it's been really sort of motivating and and it's awesome, like the meta part of that is just how that affects my own positive mental attitude. Like I, I learned, okay, like, what's the worst thing that can happen? You just ask and, and somebody can say no. Right. And like you said, there's even positive aspects to that. So I'll just ask. And then people will say yes. And not only will they say yes, they'll go, you know what? You asked for this. Why don't I just do this? And they'll like suggest to go even further than I would ever have imagined. <laughs> and that just does so much for me. Cause like, I don't, this isn't my only job, right? Like I'm working a full time, like I'm hustling just so yeah. that I can have the opportunity to make PMA into a magazine. And- I mean, it's really the catharsis after like a hard week, just trying to turn a dime into a dollar to have somebody like go out of their way to give me something super amazing, like a beautiful piece of art for the cover or, you know,
0: Mm -hmm. something like that. It is a really beautifully designed magazine. There's so much interesting art and photography in it. And I think that's another sort of interesting almost marketing angle about the magazine is each issue has become a collector's item because of the the limited print run and there are these these beautiful keepsake things which makes it very unique compared to you know so many other forms of media that we are ingesting <laughs> such a right steady now clip. you can
1: make a jpeg into an nft and sell it for five hundred thousand dollars, but i'm gonna go with the 1595 print magazine and see how that works.
0: What are some of your goals for the magazine and where do you see it going?
1: I'm just going to keep doing it. If I can just like increase the audience size a little by little, it's great. As long as I see growth, I'm happy and it doesn't have to be a big growth. It just has to be positive movement. It's cool. So that's one of the goals. Another one of the goals is just being able to pick, get into the black so that I can actually start investing in certain places like contributions where I think it's going to mm. make a real, you know, impact on the quality of the experience. And that's not to say that the people who are contributing for free aren't like contributing the the best work that I can get, because I do believe that is absolutely happening. And quite frankly, one of the goals of the magazine and one of my dreams is that more of the stories are coming from the communities that we're writing about. So I would love for an article about something that's great that's going on in the community to actually come from that community and amplify voices that, you know, you are not hearing from in, in mainstream media. So that's one of the goals. And then, you know, we have a podcast as well. So mm-hmm. like I'm starting to work on the first proper season of that. We did one little pilot season just to see if I could even do that. And so every magazine, every interview for the magazine is recorded as a podcast as well. So hopefully we'll be able to start putting that season out. And then I really want to start to think about how the platform can mature to include not just other digital aspects, but I would love to have an event. Like I would love to have like a PMA day or a Uh PMA conference where a lot of the people that you read about in the magazine can come and speak, but it's also a community building thing where you could connect with resources and other people who are trying to do similar things or just come to get inspired. So I'm working on a concept for a destination type Stuff. So, you know, you can go with a small group of people to a place where something really awesome is being done. In our very first issue, we did an article about a woman, Gretchen Bear, who's teaching kids across the border in Mexico art. And she just mm-hmm. opened an art school across the border. She lives in Bisbee, Naco's right across the border. Oh, okay. She was given a space. And she's an artist and she just art to these kids who are living a pretty rough life and don't have, like, they don't get art in school, right? I would love to engineer a trip with a bunch of people that were interested in learning about how she did that and mm-hmm. about what it's what's going on there go down there, work with the kids, teach the kids some art, really see how Gretchen's doing it all, how she makes her living, you know, have wine tasting at night or whatever, make it like yeah. a fun trip. So I'm, I'm looking at ways to kind of expand the storytelling in, in in a way where people can get more engaged in it.
0: How did West Seattle play a part in getting PMA Magazine off the ground?
1: Right. This is a West Seattle podcast. West (laughs) Seattle played a huge part. So I moved to West Seattle in 1997. The primary reason for me moving here was more access to my community than I would have in other... I I lived in a block off of Aurora on North 95th when I was a teenager and moved here Uh from Hawaii in 1989 with my rock band. So I lived in a couple different neighborhoods and I just felt like West Seattle had this suburby kind of small town vibe, but... It also had all the stuff that I wanted, so mm-hmm. I could walk to the bowling alley, which I'm not a bowler, but I just bowling alley is just something fun to go have some drinks and bowl. Like, and,
0: it's and, so nice to know it's there. <laughs>
1: It's. it's, I love it. And I have become a bowler since. But really, the most important thing to me was Easy Street and being able to walk. Like, having a record store close to my house is a huge blessing. And I'm there very regularly. And my house is full of records that I bought there. You know, like bars and just restaurants, just being able to sort of walk around. And then sort of the overarching kind of appeal of West Seattle for me, and this was especially true in 1997, was just that it was like the most blue-collar kind of like group of folks outside of like the central district that i could find right and or that i could find in seattle and so it Mm -hmm. had like you know it had all the things that i wanted but it was also like it just wasn't you know i'm not i'm not an east side guy i loved that that there were people of color on my street i love that the guy across the street worked for ups i Mm love that the guy on the corner had an auto shop was just you know like I love that everybody was real and just, I could go to their house and talk to them and everybody was just super friendly and down to earth. So that that part of West Seattle has changed. It Mm -hmm. feels different now, but it still feels like that. And it's actually, I think over time become more diverse, which is interesting. You know, when you think about the concept of gentrification and the way that that has worked and is happening across the city, you see a reduction in diversity And I mean, I don't have numbers to back this up, but my experience has been like in the same way that it's gotten more diverse, like, you know, there are million and a half dollar houses on my street now where, <laughs> where you know used my I bought my house for a lot less than that mm. and it's still worth a lot less than that but there're also just a greater diversity of people in my community than there were in in 1997 so that's what I think that speaks a lot to the the value of West Seattle as just sort of a community and you know previous guests on your podcast have talked about you know how like in the podcast that that I just listened to the other day it was like the guy was talking about how the, his neighbor had was like lived born and died in the house next door, you know? Oh, right. It's like that kind of stuff I think happens all the time here. It's all Mm -hmm. over, it's all around. And then that translates into everything that people do. So it's like, when you go to the grocery store and you're checking out the groceries, it's like, that's the person that you've seen there and that you've talked to there for however long you've lived in West Seattle. And for me, that's like over 20 years. I know these people by name and they know me when it's, Time to go do something like PMA Magazine. Well, I have my whole community backing me up. So, and not every community is like that, you know? You don't have to look very far to know what it's like to not have that. Like, cause mm-hmm. that, that exists in West Seattle too. Like there are people in my neighborhood and my street who I never see. Everything gets delivered to them in a, and they, they don't interface with anybody around them. They're just, yeah. they're, they're non-entities when it comes to like the community. But the majority of people in West Seattle and the people that I've come to know and love are the opposite of that. They're like, "Yeah, what are you doing? What's going on? They remember your name. They want to know how they can help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Matt Vaughn from Easy Street is like, you know what? Not only is that an awesome idea for a magazine, but like, let's have your launch party here. Just didn't even ask. You know, he just <laughs> he just offered. And then, you know, then that room filled up with a bunch of people who were like, this is great. How can I help? Right? And so... I think that the West Seattle connection, there's been a story about West Seattle and every issue, and I do that on purpose. Like, I absolutely try to have something local because, like I said earlier about like kind of shaking my network up and down and just like working with what I know and what I have at my disposal. So I need that support. And and West Seattle's always been there for me, and I'm there for West Seattle. So, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I've been like a skate park, public skate park advocate for over 20 years working with Uh the city of Seattle to try to build skate parks. And, you know, the Ridge skate park was a huge project that I was super involved in. So like I'm giving back, I'm trying to do things, people are helping me. And I think that's why I'm still here.
0: Are there any positive things that you can think of like personally or for the community that have come from our bridge closure of of a year going strong?
1: You know, it's hard for me to say that there are positive things because there are been people, business owners and friends of mine that have been so negatively impacted by the lack of the the bridge traffic, especially mm-hmm. down in the triangle area where it's so close to our houses. And But I, I do feel like sort of selfishly the slowing of progress, and it might just be totally superficial and it might not even be real, but it feels to me like just things got slowed down a minute. It was going so fast and so furious yeah. and the reduction in the noise... In my community, and th- you know, this not just the bridge. It's actually the work that's being done down at the Harbor Island. Yeah. You know, the fact that's kind of been shut down because that sound just carries right over the hill. It sure does. The trains, I still hear the trains and there's still a little bit of like romantic vibes with the train sounds, but yeah. not at <laughs> 3 a.m. when they like to honk all the time.
0: Yeah, or um, when they crash into each other to pick up a car. Yeah. And it sounds like a garbage truck being dropped off the Empire State. Like, <laughs>
1: like literally on the next block, but it's all the way down the hill.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> I
1: think like the reduction in noise has been really something that people aren't going to notice until it comes back. You're just gonna be like, I don't feel good or I don't know mm. why I'm not as happy as I used to be, but like yeah. I'm not, and it's noise definitely does that. So I like that there's been less noise and, and then I think you know it's sort of like that what's that poly shore movie, like Biodome? It's, yeah. it's sort of the way of like, you know <laughs> Oh,
0: that poly shore movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no,
1: not the other one. Locking us all up here,
0: mm-hmm. I think
1: has been good for us. Like, I really feel like People have shown up, they've gone to local businesses, they've stayed around and they've really become more aware of the value of the things that are in their community that are at real risk of going away. Once you're sort of confronted with that reality, like, oh, my favorite restaurant could be not here anymore or Mm -hmm. record store or, you know, whatever.
0: And the people that work there.
1: Super point, right? Mm So like people showed up for that and people are doing whatever they can to try to m- make that situation right and to maintain yeah. what we love about West Seattle and I think that's positive. I think that's something that we're not going to forget and we're not going it's not again, maybe I'm just over my Mr. PMA here, but like <laughs> I I just don't see that as something that's transient. I think that's something that people will internalize and make a part of their just day to day. And we're just going to start sticking around here a little bit more often. And there's a whole science behind like where money goes and how that actually affects the people in the communities that they live in. Yeah. And I think that hopefully people are waking up to the reality. And this has shown them that like, if you spend your money outside of your community, you're not helping your community. You want to like, keep it as much as you can around the people around where you live and give it to the people that surround you, like that's really helpful and, and really good for your community.
0: Yeah. it's It has been really cool to see people sort of stepping up and being present and it, it's made me really happy and and proud to be part of this community. You know, living here is a big part of my own positive mental attitude. You know, it definitely <laughs> influences and, and informs me in that way. And what you've done with PMA was a big influence in me starting this podcast. You know, just what you did and, and going out to do it and figuring it all out as you go along and creating something meaningful and building communities. So thank you for that, because we might not be sitting here talking if it wasn't for PMA Magazine. <laughs>
1: I, I, I can't believe that would be true. But I, I, it's so nice of you to say that. It really, really, really <laughs> sure.
0: PMA Magazine issue number six was recently released. You can find it at Easy Street Records or online at getthatpma.com. That's it for this episode of Always West Seattle. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, like, and share. Always West Seattle is a Made with Bacon production, all rights reserved. Interviews have been edited for brevity and clarity. I'm Keith Bacon. Thanks for listening.